All right, Matthew chapter 11 this morning. And uh, if you're in Matthew chapter 11, I hope that we can catch up for those of you who have been away. Uh, I know there'll be a lot of fluctuation this summer as uh, different people are gone at different times for family getaways and uh, vacation times and all the different sorts of activities. And yet I hope that we can make a speedy return to unity when we come to the text and allow it to speak to us with clarity and precision. This morning, we're going to carry on in our study of Matthew chapter 11. And this morning, it's particularly important for us to be on the same page because this particular paragraph is really closely connected to last week's paragraph. So it's, it's vital that we come to this with an understanding of what has come before. And uh, we uh, are in a transition period here anyway, so it, it only heightens our need for awareness. In verse 1 of chapter 11, Matthew changes our scenario. He switches gears for us thematically. And, of course, by this time, you're tired of hearing me say that Matthew is not writing a chronological history of the life of Christ. He's writing a thematic argument for the messianic place of Christ. So Matthew's goal throughout this book is to give us theme after theme after theme or scenario after scenario after scenario that proves, that validates the claim that Jesus made to be the only Son of God who can forgive sinners from their sin and provide eternal life for those who believe. And so in chapter 11, Matthew switches gears. He moves to a new theme, a new topic, a new heading for his work of recounting the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We find in verse 1, he says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And you'll remember if you were here with us in chapter 10 that the instructing of the disciples was for the sake of launching them into their kingdom mission. At the end of chapter 9, Matthew told us that Jesus was going recklessly through every town and village. He was relentless in pursuing the gospel of the kingdom, reaching people. And he told the disciples that the harvest was 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 plentiful. It was an enormous harvest and that there were too few laborers in the field to collect the harvest. And the picture there, of course, was that there are souls awaiting the proclamation of the gospel so that they can respond in faith and belief and be brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there are too few people bringing that message to them. And so he told the disciples at the end of chapter 9 to pray for the Lord of the harvest, that is the Father, to send out laborers into his harvest, which would be kingdom citizens who would take the message of the gospel to lost people. The direct answer to that prayer came in the first verses of chapter 10, where we found that the 12 disciples were the first 12 answers to their their own prayer. And they went out on behalf of Jesus and spread the message of Jesus as his spokesman on a short-term mission that would ultimately become their lifetime mission, save that of Judas, the betrayer and the false disciple. So in chapter 10, Jesus takes upon himself and Matthew recounts for us his instruction to his disciples about what was going to happen, what life was going to be like on the kingdom mission and in the kingdom mission. And the expectation that we derive from chapter 10 is that each and every one of us who stands as a citizen in the kingdom of Christ is also expected to be a missionary for the kingdom of Christ. 
So there is, in fact, global missions. There are missionaries that fit within our stereotype of what missionaries are. There are people that leave their homeland, go to a foreign country or a place where the language is not their own, and they take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people. Surely, that is a critical component of the mission of the kingdom. But the expectation of chapter 10 was that each and every one of the disciples, every one of us who follow under Christ, who live life with him as king and us as citizens under his kingship, engage in that mission. So every one of us is a local missionary. Some of us will be set aside, called out, and sent off into global missionary service. At the end of chapter 10, after speaking to the persecution that would come, the fear that may arise in the hearts of the missionaries for the kingdom, Jesus finishes instruction and he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Matthew doesn't tell us what happened on the first missionary trip. He doesn't tell us how it went, what the story was. We're going to find out later about the disciples' mission work as they continue to do this with Jesus But Matthew's point is to get us back to Jesus Christ. He wanted us to hear the words of the king regarding the mission. And now he wants us to come back and focus our attention again or continue to focus our attention on Jesus rather than Jesus's servants. In fact, he focuses so much on Jesus that he says that Jesus went from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so the missionaries get no more discussion. But we've turned the corner and now in verse number two, we find out that Matthew is going to use chapter 11 into chapter 12. And really, this is going to be a theme that carries us for a major portion of the of the book of Matthew. Matthew is going to turn our focus to the opposition that is rising against the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 11, we're going to see opposition to Jesus in a bunch of different ways. And probably the shock of it is not that it's there. Because chapter 10 promised opposition. The shock of chapter 11 is the source of that opposition. Because the first source comes from a doubting prophet who is none other than the forerunner of the Messiah. He's the one who baptized Jesus. His name is John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized Jesus and immediately heard from heaven the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, John the Baptist had every reason to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And there in prison, under the dire circumstances of his life, and without hearing about the wrath and judgment of the Messiah King, he began to doubt. He began to wonder if Jesus was in fact who he said he was. And Jesus responds to him in those verses by saying, I am the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Therefore, if I fulfill one part, which is the blessing of healing, the blessing of miracle power, then I will fulfill the second part of the prophecy, which is the wrath and judgment of God upon the wicked, which is what John was desperate for, because the wrath of God upon the wicked would mean John's prison term would be over. We know because of the account of our New Testament that John never was released from prison. He was beheaded on behalf of his allegiance to Yahweh God and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That brings us then to verse number seven. And Jesus has just finished telling the disciples of John who came as the delegation. Who asked the question, are you really the one? Jesus just finished rebuking them with his answer. 
You go back and tell John this about me. Now we come to verse number 7. And it's as if Jesus immediately with his expert understanding of people whom he created with a word. Colossians tells us. He immediately turns now to deal with what was happening because of what he had said to those disciples. So the context is critical to our understanding. We have seen a doubting prophet. What we're about to see is the critical crowd. So you have these people that they're, they're the Jesus groupies. They're always with them. You, you can't go anywhere without finding these thousands of people hoarding around Jesus. These are the same people that eventually will be fed miraculously. And they'll show up the next day and Jesus will confront them because they're there to see him again because they're hungry. That's why they came back. These are the kind of people. There's thousands of them. There's myriads of them. And Jesus is addressing them as the critical crowd who now bring a new uh, aspect, a new sphere of opposition to the ministry of Jesus. Last week, we got acquainted with John the Baptist in a not so encouraging way as he doubted. This week, we're confronted with the temptation on our part, standing in the crowd as true followers of Christ, looking at our Messiah, seeing the disciples of John coming and asking him if he's truly the one, hearing his response to those disciples that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now we're in the crowd and we're faced with a temptation standing in that scenario. And that's what we're going to see today. The Lord provides us with two crystal clear realities from this paragraph, verse number seven, all the way down to verse number 19. There are just two main truths that come out of this text. And I, I hope that you will see them clearly and that I'll be able to, by God's grace and the power of the spirit, explain them clearly to you. The big concept that flows from verse number seven down through verse number 19 is this. Do not miss this. If you have concluded wrongly regarding John. That is John the Baptist. If you have concluded wrongly regarding John, then you have no doubt concluded wrongly regarding Jesus. That's what comes from this paragraph. If you have responded wrongly to John, then you have responded wrongly to Jesus. If you've misunderstood who John is, then you probably have not grasped who Jesus is. And Jesus here turns to the crowd and deals with their critical spirit deals with their self-righteousness, deals with their pride as they stand and in disdain of these disciples of John who have come and ask this question of our Lord Jesus. If you have concluded wrongly regarding John, then you have no doubt concluded wrongly regarding Jesus. This is what I hope will become quite evident through these two main truths this morning. Let's Let's read the text together. You can follow along as I read it out loud. And let's focus our attention and try to see what the text says first. Then we'll talk about what the text means. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one 
greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing statement. Verse 11, truly, I say to you, among those who those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse number 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And I trust that we will see from these two main truths that if you have wrongly concluded regarding John, you have no doubt wrongly concluded regarding Jesus. Jesus takes up the case for John. I think that's clearly what's happening here. Jesus has spoken to the disciples. And as the disciples no doubt ran off to tell John what Jesus had said in response to their question on his behalf. Jesus turns back to the crowd and he sees their faces. He sees their response to that question. And he immediately takes up John's case. If you ever wanted somebody to be your defender, Jesus would be the one. And so he instantly takes up John's case because it's clear that the critical crowd is thinking poorly of who John is, or at least they're thinking incorrectly about who John is. Jesus presents a case for the relationship between John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he says the two are so intricately connected that if you've missed one, you've missed the other. And if you've gotten John rightly and understood who he was, then you have responded, no doubt, rightly to the one he led the way for. Okay, two main truths that will help establish that big idea, I hope. Uh, Number one, your conclusion regarding John is crucial to your spiritual relationship with Jesus. Okay, what you've deduced, your conclusion about John the Baptist and who he is, what he accomplished, why he came is directly connected to your relationship and your spiritual health with your relationship to Jesus Christ. You say, how can that be? Well, notice what Jesus does in these three questions. He, he repeats one question three times, and he has three sub-questions underneath of that one question. And I, I hope you'll see that your conclusion regarding John is critical to your spiritual relationship with Jesus. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. Verse number 7, concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? Or what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Here are three questions from one question to get the conclusion right about John. And what Jesus is doing with these questions is he's just saying, you misunderstood John. You, you are thinking wrongly about him. And he does it with these questions that they should have been able to answer. 
The first question is, what did you expect and what drove you out into the wilderness to hear this individual preach? Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? And just love it when I come to a part in my Bible where I just haven't the slightest idea what he's talking about. This would be one of them. In fact, David came into my office and I, we were having a meeting about something administratively. And I said, oh, by the way, what is a reed shaken by the wind? And he totally knew. He's, he does that to me time in and time out. He always knows the answer. He said, well, I, I haven't studied that, but I would assume that this is what's going on. And I had just gotten done studying it, so I was really hoping for an arrogant moment of being more smart than David. And in fact, it didn't happen. Okay? A reed shaken by the wind. What is Jesus talking about? Here's what he's saying. A reed shaken by the wind was a rabbinic, rabbinic uh, catchphrase. It was something that was used. It was a colloquialism. And it meant a teacher who like a reed, was blown by the wind, a teacher who would respond to the prevalent mood of the people that he was teaching to. So in a day and age where there was interaction while someone was speaking publicly, and while the rabbi would sit down and and the crowd would come around him and he would teach to them and they would respond, it's true, rabbi, thank you, rabbi, we agree, rabbi. The reed shaken by the wind was the picture, it it was the illustration of the teacher who when the crowd started to wrestle against him, he would just move with the crowd. If they liked what he was saying, he'd say it. If he saw that they were not liking what he was saying, I'll switch over to this and hope that they like what I say now. He was a reed shaken by the wind. And Jesus says, did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? If we've forgotten, let's just turn back a page or two to Matthew chapter 3 and briefly identify who John the Baptist is. And uh, let's see if he's a reed shaken by the wind. Verse number one of Matthew chapter three. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Here's the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he goes on to say that John was the one who was promised. And notice what he picks up. He sees the Pharisees coming, that's John in the wilderness, and he says to the Pharisees, you pack of snakes, that's what he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, let's just get the picture straight, John the Baptist is in the wilderness, the Pharisees come out with the people to hear him preach. And John says to them, who do you think you are showing up to be here at a service for repentance? You bear some repentance and then you can come back and you can be a part of our service. And if you think that you get to get into any kingdom because of who your bloodline is, that is Abraham. And that's the reason you're here is because you feel like, well, we're sons of Abraham. So we're sons of Yahweh's covenant. Therefore, we can be here. John says, you know what? You're so useless and you're so meaningless that God could raise up stones to be children of Abraham if he wanted to. Jesus, did you go out into the wilderness to see a a reed shaken in the wind? Not even close. John the Baptist was a fearless preacher of the gospel. Jesus is making a point by asking a rhetorical question that, that points to the obvious conclusion. No, they didn't go out and they were not drawn to his preaching because he was wishy-washy, flipping and flopping. He was not like a modern politician. 
John had a message that came directly from God. It was truth. He actually believed it. He actually lived in accordance to it. And he was faithful to it. That's why they went and they heard John. Jesus is defending him. He's establishing a correct perspective on John the Baptist. Second question. What then, in verse 8, did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? What was the spectacle? His clothes? Uh, I think not. Because you remember John the Baptist was not just odd because of how bold he was in his proclamation. He was just flat out odd in every way. Right? John the Baptist was a weird individual. He was out there wearing camel hair. He was wearing camel skins. Not your Armani of the Israeli day. Okay? Um, He did not go to the posh uh, boutiques to get his clothes specially fitted. The sad story is some camel bit the dust. John got its fur. That's what happened. Okay? The people were not going out to see him. If you want to go see soft clothes, if you want to go see the finest clothing, then you go to a king's court, and that's where you find that. You went out to see John because he was a spectacle, because he had rejected all of life's pleasure. He didn't care about clothes. That's what you loved about him. He didn't care what you thought about what he said. That's what you loved about him. That's why you were drawn to him. And ultimately, the third question is the culmination. Jesus says, did you go out because he was a prophet? And he assumes that they say yes. And he says, exactly, but you don't get it. You see, his fearless communication and his rejection of all of modern comforts was not just a sign of his oddity or his weirdness. It was a mark of his position and role within the epic of God's redemptive history. John the Baptist was more than a prophet. He was greater than the prophets. Jesus clearly communicates this in verse number 10. It was John of whom it was written... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, that is the Messiah's face, who will prepare your way before you. You see, Jesus here is talking in the broadest terms of the biggest picture. There was an old era before the coming of the Messiah King where the prophets declared to the nation of Israel, he's coming, judgment's coming, the kingdom's coming, it'll be here. If you don't stop sinning, you're going to be judged, you're going to go into exile, but it will come. The kingdom will come. You will be restored. The prophets just declare over and over again. And if you're in your Bible reading plan, let's see, it's it's the end of June. You're getting close to the prophets. You're going to find the theme of your prophets is just constant. But you see, John was not just any prophet. He was the last prophet of that old era. John was the final culmination. Go back to a place that I know you spend a bunch of time. Go back to the book of Malachi. Let's go to Malachi. You say, where in the world is Malachi? It's about four pages before Matthew because it's the last book of your Old Testament. So go back to Malachi and let's find in Malachi these prophecies. Let's just see them and then set them in their context and we'll move on to the second truth. Here are the promises that we find quoted by our Lord in Matthew chapter 11. Malachi chapter 3. That's a lot of turning still. Malachi is right before Matthew, right after Zechariah. So Matthew should help. Okay, Matthew chap- or Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit at a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in the righteousness to the Lord. Verse number one. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. This is the messianic message that Jesus is fulfilling. And John the Baptist was not just a prophet. He was the prophet as the forerunner to the Messiah. Let's think a little bit. This is hard for us as Americans. This is really tough because we don't have these kind of time categories. Um, The Gaddies were just in Europe where these categories fit. Um, John the Baptist arrived on the scene 400 years after the last speech from God. The nation of Israel had not heard from Yahweh in 400 years. There had been no prophet. There had been no one who came as the spokesman for Yahweh. 400 years have passed and John the Baptist arrives as the forerunner to the Messiah. He is the final prophet. Jesus says, if you've misunderstood John, if you've concluded wrongly about him, It is critically important that you understand that that has also probably led you to wrongly understand and conclude about Jesus. The people did not go out to see John because he was a people pleaser. They did not go out to see John because of his fancy attire. They went out to hear his message. And his message was his message because of who he was in redemptive history. It's critical in light of the context for us to grasp this Now, Matthew goes on in chapter 11 to speak even more to what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist in verse number 11. We read this verse twice because it is critically important for us this morning. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, understand again the context in which that statement is is made by Jesus. He is speaking here of the epic nature of john's ministry that is in the old era in everything that the jewish crowd around him had known there was nobody greater in their role and responsibility humanly speaking than john the baptist john the baptist got to walk in front of the messiah and he didn't have to say he's coming he actually got the privilege of saying he's here this is him the kingdom of god is at hand John the Baptist was the greatest of the old era. He's greater in his importance in his role than David. He's greater in his importance and role than Moses. He's greater in his importance and role than Isaiah, than Jeremiah, than Ezekiel. He's greater than all of the old era prophets because he was the front runner for the Messiah. Before Christ had come, the, 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 the time period was designated as that of the prophets and the law. That is Moses and the prophets. And there was no one within that era that could compare to John's role in his ministry as the front runner to the Messiah's arrival. But notice the second part of verse number 11. While the human reality was that no one had been greater than John, the second part of verse 11 communicates a spiritual reality that should be a great encouragement to you this morning if you're a kingdom citizen. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
you see the kingdom citizens are now living on this side of the coming of the Messiah. They are experiencing the blessings of the fulfillment of the prophecies. Therefore, any and all from the least to the greatest in the kingdom are above are greater than in their spiritual reality all of the old era, including its greatest, who is John the Baptist. So Jesus says, you've got to get John the Baptist right. He was not just a prophet. He was the front runner of the Messiah. He was number one priority in the Old Testament. He was, after 400 years of silence, the front runner of the Messiah. And the kingdom citizens, from the least to the greatest, now stand over as greater spiritually in their relationship to the Messiah than any of the old era, including John the Baptist. The crowds did not understand who John the Baptist was. Therefore, they were not understanding who Jesus was. Their, their, their willingness in this moment, as we read this text, and in the white space, we see their critical eyes at the disciples of John. Their willingness to be critical of John the Baptist, communicated to Jesus as he teaches, that they had not understood who he was. And if they had not understood who he was, they were missing who Jesus was. And ultimately, we know that's true, right? We know that's true because this crowd threw palm branches down on the road and said, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Jesus rode on a donkey through their town and they were overjoyed that the kingdom in their expectation was here. Days go by and the exact same people are no longer saying Hosanna. They're crying at the top of their lungs, crucify him. We want Barabbas. Barabbas is more effective for our view of the kingdom than Jesus is. Jesus understood this. He understood their doubt and their critical spirit as they viewed the messengers of John the Baptist. He goes on from this point to communicate to us And I think it's important for us to grasp as we view this entire section as a whole that what was true in the Beatitudes is still true now. The king and his message of the kingdom is all about your heart. And Jesus is not concerned so much about your activity as he is about your heart, which will then produce activity. John MacArthur says, John the Baptist entering the scene of history at precisely the right time according to God's own plan, prediction, and provision. After 400 years with no word from the Lord, Israel was expectant. And until Jesus began his own ministry, John was the focal point of redemptive history. He was the culmination of Old Testament history and prophecy. But all those who then after John would place their confidence in Jesus Christ as the Messiah who fulfilled the entire Old Testament would be seen in the eternal redemptive scope as greater than John. Now, we go on in verse number 12, and Jesus describes the kingdom. For the days of John the Baptist until now, which would only have been about 18 months, <laughs> the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Your Bible might have a note saying that the kingdom is violent. I think this is the proper understanding, the passive sense of this, being persecuted. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. They looked toward John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. You say, why? What's the Elijah to come part back in Malachi? And we won't go through the process of going back there. Back in Malachi chapter four and verse five. At the very close of the Old Testament. 
the prophecy is given that a second Elijah will come. There will be a, a, a prophet that will go before the face of the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, if you're willing to accept it, that's who John was. And if you don't accept that John was the second Elijah, then you probably have not accepted that Jesus is the Messiah King. And he concludes this section, this first main truth, that our conclusions about John have everything to do with our spiritual relationship to Jesus with this famous line in verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is going to be something he says during the parables. The idea here is that those who have had their ears opened to the gospel understand what I'm saying. Pay attention to what I'm saying. If you have ears to hear and the crowd did not represent sets of ears that could hear. They represented hearts of stone, blinded eyes and deaf ears spiritually. Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, that is God has awakened your heart. He has replaced your heart of stone with a heart of flesh and he has allowed you to hear and see the truth. Then take note of what I'm saying about John. If you've misunderstood John's role and place in God's plan, if you've not concluded rightly about his preeminent prophetic ministry, then you may very well be missing the reality of the one whom he prophesied. Now, Jesus goes on in the second main truth in the second half of this paragraph or this thought section, and he explains this even further. So if our conclusion about John is directly connected to our spiritual relationship to Jesus, then truth number two develops in verses 16 through 19, your response and my response to John is crucial to our spiritual ongoing relationship with Jesus. So both our conclusions about John and our response to John have everything to do with our spiritual relationship to Jesus. Now, we don't have three more questions. We have one question. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation. It is like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their playmates. I love, I love when the scriptures do this. I love when Jesus does this for us. Jesus here uses a parable, um, a picture, uh, a real life scenario to describe what he's, what he's, what he's saying to the, to the multitudes that are there. And, and what he's saying to them is not nice, by the way. Um, this is not a friendly little chat that he's using a helpful illustration. He doesn't have a chalkboard. He's drawing things, flannel graph. Jesus is using a parable to paint the bad picture of what he compares this generation to. This generation, Jesus says, can be compared to children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. Now, what the kids say to the other kids in the picture that Jesus uses is critical. Here's what he says. The kiddos are sitting off on the side. The other kids are out playing around and the kids sitting down say to the kids playing, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. It's kind of a weird story. I don't think I understand exactly what's going on in this story. You have one set of kids that have musical instruments and in this performance in their marketplace, they're out there with their parents. In this performance, one set plays the music. The other ones act out whatever it is that's being played. I'm sure you guys all did this, even if you've forgotten or you don't want to admit it. Um, we have dressed up with our siblings. We have played different roles with our siblings. Some are too embarrassing to recount. All right? We've done this. And so they're playing this game. And whatever they play on their little flute is supposed to be 
responded to with action by their playmates. So they play a happy wedding song. They should act like it's a festival of a wedding, dancing around, celebrating in the Jewish manner. They play a funeral song. They should mourn and and act like the Jewish mourners, which would have been very dramatic, tearing clothes, beating chest, pulling hair. And they're saying to their friends, we played the song and you didn't respond. And Jesus says, how do I describe this crowd? It's like people who hear the song and they don't respond. They, they don't get it. I mean, we're playing the wedding song. Dance. Like you can just see the kids in the market. Hey, it's the third time we played the funeral song and you still haven't acted like you were mourning. What is wrong with you? The picture would have been pointed to the, to the, to the congregation that was standing before him, to the, the crowd of people. Jesus says, how do I describe you? I describe you like these kids. You heard the song and you didn't know what to do with it. You didn't know how to respond. You didn't know how to take John the Baptist. And you now you don't know how to respond to Jesus of Nazareth. Your response to John parallels your response to Jesus. If you've misunderstood and misresponded, it has everything to do with your spiritual condition. Notice the explanation in verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. So if we're going to parallel this, John comes with the funeral dirge. He comes with weird eating practices, total abstinence from alcoholic beverages. He comes wearing strange clothes, eating locusts and honey as his primary diet. He is the simplest of all people because he only has one thing to say, judgment's coming. And so he's consumed with this dark message. And the people responded by accusing John of having a demon. So the funeral song was played and the kids didn't know what to do. Their response was, that's a crazy song. That was their response. And the generation has responded wrongly to John and the consequences are dire. Look at verse number 19. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, the opposite is true of Jesus. Now, he has come, and Jesus, by all, by all human standards, is a normal person. He grew up in a carpenter's home. He's not at all flashy, but he is normal. He's wearing normal Jewish clothes. He carries a normal Jewish life. He eats normal Jewish food. He drinks normal Jewish drinks. And the accusation that comes against him is not it's time to celebrate the arrival of the king and his kingdom. The response to him is he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's wicked. He's not to be trusted. You see, the people responded most pointedly seen by their religious leaders. Example. But the people responded like children in a marketplace who missed the tune And didn't get the effect right. They missed John. Therefore they could be critical right now of John. And they were missing. And they would miss. Their Messiah King. And they would lose the effect. Of his grace and blessing in their lives. This is the generation of Jesus presence on earth. And yet this is still true of this generation Awaiting his second coming. The people had responded without knowledge to both the negative warning of John and the joyous inauguration of Jesus 
as the king of heaven. Just a side note, probably not a dramatically important side note, but in John chapter 2, we know the miracle of the wedding feast where Jesus turned the water to wine. Um, We find here Jesus came eating and drinking, and those are Jesus' words about himself. Uh, The reason they could say he was a glutton and a drunkard is because he was drinking alcoholic beverages, as was natural for their culture. So just understand that as a biblical side note as you're studying your Bible. Don't don't write in juice. Um, you, you cannot be accused of being intoxicated and a drunkard because you drink a lot of juice. Okay? Welsh's was not Jesus' normal drink, nor was it anybody's in Israel, because alcohol was used not just for fluids, but for purification of water. So drunkenness was rampant. Just a side note for curious Bible students who were hoping I'd say something about alcohol. I won't. I won't say anything other than to say, you've got to get this passage right. That's what it says. Okay? The conclusion is found in the end of verse number 19. And it's, it's everything to this study. It really is the heartbeat of the main point, the big idea, that the way we relate to Jesus and John is intricately connected. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Why does Jesus say that? Why is that his last thought? I mean, he said all of these things, and they're difficult to understand, but he's defended John. He's saying, if, if you haven't concluded rightly about him, you've probably missed me. He's, he's defended John so much to say, if you responded wrongly and didn't interpret John right, you, you're not interpreting me right either. And then he says at that conclusion, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And here's what Jesus is saying In context, directly connected to verses 18 and 19. The fruit of the life of of John the Baptist and the life of Jesus will establish, will vindicate, will justify the heavenly wisdom with which they lived. Both cases. John was not perfect by any standard, but he lived according to the heavenly wisdom that was his calling as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Jesus would live in perfect conformity to the will of the Father. And the deeds that Jesus lived, the life that he lived, would vindicate, would justify the claim that he makes that he is acting upon God's wisdom, the Father's wisdom from heaven. John ultimately would be martyred for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus would be murdered as a covering for sinners. Both cases were linked in this moment by the wisdom that was seen in their deeds. And the implication is clear. If you've missed John, you miss Jesus. And if you miss John's uh, ministry and respond wrongly to it, then you probably have missed the ministry of Jesus and responded wrongly to him. You have made him something else. Many of the Jews, like us today, would be willing to say Jesus was the Messiah. The problem was their definition of Messiah They were willing to say John was a prophet. The problem was their definition of what kind of a prophet he was. Therefore, our response to the doubting John. Poor Thomas, he gets all the doubting. We have doubting John here before doubting Thomas ever shows up. Our response to doubting John needs to be one of compassion and understanding. Not one of critical judgment against him. Jesus is the only Messiah. 
and he is cause for great hope and rejoicing. The kingdom is marked by the spiritual lordship of Jesus Christ as proclaimed by John the Baptist. Now, let me ask you a couple practical questions. Just a few questions that I hope can bring this text down on you and put it down in our lap. This is a hard one because we're dealing with a very specific scenario and one that we're unfamiliar with. So let's, let's bring some questions that I hope bring that passage down and just drop it on our laps. Have you allowed a lesser view of Jesus? Have you allowed a lesser view of Jesus to vindicate your disobedience to his lordship? Let me ask that in a different way. Do you consider him practically in your life as less than what he claimed to be and who he truly is? And therefore, because you consider him less, you feel vindicated in disregarding what he has said. Do you live life with sin that is just undealt with? Do you live in rebellion against him? Are there little things? Are there big things? Are there mental things? Are there physical things? Are there things you're doing or things you're not doing that are sinful activities that are being unchecked? They're not being dealt with. Because if sin is going unchecked, we are by our practice clearly proclaiming Jesus is not the Lord of my life. If our profession this morning is the Lordship of Christ, then so many of you that is your confession. That is who you are. We must be careful to examine our lives so that our lives match that profession. Paul called it walking in a manner worthy of Christ. So, have you allowed a lesser view of Jesus to creep into your mind and therefore to vindicate disobedience to his lordship? If so, grace is sufficient. The cross has provided for your obedience. Look to Christ. Believe by faith that he is in fact who he said he was. And apply his grace through the power of his word and the working of his spirit to your obedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Secondly, are you actively and persistently pursuing a right understanding of and therefore affection toward Jesus the Christ. Do you read John's message and your heart is filled with a joy that resonates with the coming of the Messiah? And are you actively and persistently pursuing a right understanding of Jesus which leads to an affection towards Jesus which leads to obedience to Jesus? If you are and need to more or if you are in a dry time of your life spiritually and you are suffering from inactivity and a lack of persistence, grace is sufficient. All that you need for life and godliness has been provided through the cross. Preach the gospel again to yourself. Confess your sin. Beg God for new mercy and grace and move forward in obedience to his commands. Finally, we need to close. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. You don't know John the Baptist. You don't really care to know John the Baptist or understand him or to respond to him. If you were in the crowd, you would have laughed and said, I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah, John was fun to go watch because he was really strange and he didn't fear any man. But I think we're getting all hyped up about nothing. John was just a prophet. Jesus is just a miraculous good guy who came from God. 
You don't know Jesus. You've never come to the place where you have bowed your heart. You've submitted your life under Jesus as the king of his kingdom. You've never by faith looked to the cross and said, I no longer trust my own effort. I no longer trust my own righteousness. I recognize my sin has created a gap between me and God, and I can't do anything about the gap. It's an infinite gap. Therefore, I place my confidence entirely on someone else to bridge that gap, Jesus Christ himself at the cross. If you've never done that, today is the day of salvation. This is the era of salvation. When your life is over, when your numbered days come to a close, there will be no hope for you. Jesus offers you full forgiveness and eternal life if you will turn from yourself and place your life entirely in his hands. You see, I can't see him. I didn't see the cross. I, I didn't see him raise, rise from the dead. I didn't see him ascend to the right hand of the Father. I didn't see him provide eternal life for people. I didn't see that. I understand. I, I didn't either, nor did anyone here who follows Christ. God grant you eyes to see what you can't see. That is faith, believing what cannot be seen. To hear with ears that have been quickened, that have been made alive to hear. And a heart that will respond in faith and obedience because it has been granted life by none other than our Lord Jesus himself. Unbelievers, respond today. The offer is available to you. It is not an eternal offer. But those who respond in repentance and belief will receive eternal life. Gracious Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the clear implications of it upon our lives, both as your children and those who may be with us who are not your children. We want to understand and grasp and respond to our Lord Jesus appropriately. We want our lives to to shout, I am all about the biblical understanding of Jesus Christ. I love him because of who he's revealed to be. I obey him. Because of who he's revealed to be. I worship him because of who he's revealed to be and what has been accomplished. That's our heart's desire as your people this morning. We ask for grace to live that out. To apply that to our battle with sin. To apply that to our battle for contentment. To apply that to our battle for hope in in the seasons of trial. Teach us. Both to love the history of redemption and the great forerunner to the Messiah. But teach us more so to embrace what John ultimately embraced. The Jesus of Nazareth. The son of Mary. Was none other than the God man. Your son. The savior of sinners who believe. Teach us to believe that every day. So that the practical applications of it are endless in our lives. God, we ask you to break hearts that are hard towards you, to remove scales from blinded eyes that cannot see Christ, to unclog ears that are deaf to the message of the gospel, the message of hope through repentance and faith, to bring your good news of Jesus Christ's forgiveness of sin to bear on sinful people, who have no capacity in and of themselves to respond. Draw men and women to yourself, we pray, for your own glory. And use us as your people to be trophies of your work in and through us. 
We anticipate it in Jesus' name. Amen.